We're in a summer series walking through the books of Samuel. We spent four weeks uh, in uh, a few texts from 1 Samuel. We now transition to 2 Samuel. We'll continue to walk through 2 Samuel for the rest of the summer until mid-August. Uh, today's text, just I'll elaborate on a little bit more and give some more context and detail behind it. But what you need to know for now is that what you're about to hear is, uh, is from David, uh, who would be the would-be king. He's not king yet. And he's offering a lament. He's offering a prayer. He is expressing his grief, not just personal, but collective grief, uh, upon hearing the news that King Saul and one of his sons, Jonathan, who happens to be David's best friend, both of them have died. And so this is uh, sort of like a funeral dirge. It's a song. David's going to actually command the people to sing this song, to learn not just the music, but to learn uh, the words. And this should be their story. It should be the story the people tell. It should be the song they sing. It should be the truth that they reveal about Saul and Jonathan. David intoned this lamentation over Saul and his son Jonathan. He ordered that the song of the bow be taught to the people of Judah. It is written in the book of Jasher. David said, Your glory, O Israel, lies slain upon your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult you mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor bounteous fields. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, anointed with oil no more. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, nor the sword of Saul return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you with crimson in luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain upon your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan, Greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open this word afresh to us this day so that we would be a different people than those who tuned into worship, those who are here in this sacred space so that this ancient word may fall upon our ears and our hearts with a freshness that speaks into our lives and shapes our lives to humbly follow Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. My paternal grandmother emigrated to the United States in 1923. Her name was Heather, and when she arrived on our nation's soil, she was just six weeks old. My great-grandmother, whose name was also Heather, uh, sailed on the SS President Adams as this brave uh, Scottish mother-daughter tandem 
completed the 12-day voyage from London to New York. When they arrived uh, in New York, they quickly made their way down to Philadelphia to live with my great-grandmother's aunt and to start fresh, to start a brand new life. Now, you might be wondering why they needed a fresh start. Why did they need a, a new beginning? And you may also be wondering why was there no man? Why was there no husband, no father, or any other family member to travel with this young mother and her weeks old daughter. And it's here at this juncture that I am going to reveal to you, I'm going to tell to you one of our family secrets. A secret that was kept in my family for the most part. It wasn't shared until my grandmother's death in 1992. You see, my great-grandmother, her name was Heather Urquhart. Uh, she was the daughter of a Scottish minister. Presbyterian minister. His name was John. And when John's daughter, Heather, moved from Scotland to England to be a nurse, she found herself employed with a well-to-do family called Spurway. The matriarch of that family, her name was Lucy Spurway. Uh, she was infirmed and she needed around-the-clock care and they could afford around-the-clock care. And so my great-grandmother was hired as Miss Spurway's nurse. Lucy Spurway also had an adult son who was married. Uh, his name was Noel, and Noel Spurway had an affair with my great-grandmother, which is how she became pregnant. Now, as you might have assumed or imagined, word of this pregnancy would have brought great shame to both uh, the Spurway and the Urquhart families especially being the daughter of a Presbyterian minister. Uh, this pregnancy was taboo. It needed to be quiet. It needed to be kept a secret. We're not exactly sure within our family how it came to pass that they uh, had the money to arrange for passage from England to the United States, whether it was the Spurway family or the Urquhart clan who ponied up the money or a combination of both of them, but they bought tickets, they had tickets for passage, and that's how that part of my family came to the United States. As I mentioned, uh, this story was really a family secret held in trust by my grandmother and a few other family members, a few of her daughters knew, a few extended family members knew, but that was it. It was a secret that most of them kept until her death. It wasn't until I was an adult, I was about 28 years old, when I first heard this story from one of my aunts. She thought it would be good for me to know. It was the week before my ordination, and she thought it would be interesting for me to know that my great-great-grandfather was also a Presbyterian minister, which was interesting since most of our family, as far as I knew, were all Catholic. I was also interested in the other details of the story as well that she finally divulged to me. Now, I think it's safe to say, and I, and I think this is going to have resonance with everybody uh, in this room and, and joining us in worship via live stream, but I think it's safe to say that families have secrets. Families have secrets. Systems and communities and churches and organizations and nations have secrets too. And, and we keep secrets 
for good reason sometimes. We keep the harder truths to ourselves uh, for various reasons. Sometimes we keep secrets to honor somebody's request. Somebody has asked us to keep confidence. Someone has asked us to keep a secret, and we do that to honor them and their desire, desire for privacy or confidentiality. Sometimes uh, these truths, these secrets that we keep, if they were spoken, uh, we imagine that they would cause great consternation. They would cause uh, shame. They would cause embarrassment. Like in my family situation, to hold those truths in secret so that they could all avoid that perceived embarrassment that would come. And sometimes, if told, we know this to be true, if these secrets are told, if these truths are no longer hidden and they're brought out into the open, uh, sometimes that can upset the continuity or harmony, whether it's real harmony or whether it's fake harmony, manufactured harmony, faux harmony, regardless, it can upset the continuity and the harmony of a family or a system or even a community. Some of you have read uh, the well-regarded book Educated by Tara Westover. You're familiar with that uh, book. Uh, Ms. Westover describes in that book growing up in rural Idaho. Uh, she was the daughter of rigid and anti-mainstream society Mormons. When she was a teenager, uh, Westover was physically and emotionally abused by her older brother. She kept this a secret, not only from her family, but she also kept it a secret from herself. She imagined that it didn't actually happen, but there were times where she couldn't avoid the hard truths that she had buried deep down inside of her. They would come out, and, and on occasion she would confront her brother about these abuses, and her brother would say something, you're making a big deal out of this. You're blowing it out of proportion. This was just a game that we used to play when we were children. And she buried the memories deep again and not tell them to herself. Finally, one day, she found the resolve to tell her parents the truth that she had been harboring, the secrets that she had kept. And when she did, her parents did not believe her. She was making it up, they said. She was delusional. It couldn't be true. She was lying. Her parents refused to believe her story. Not too long ago, Westover was interviewed by The Guardian, and she said this, in families like mine, there's no crime worse than telling the truth. In families like mine, there is no crime worse than telling the truth. I suspect that some of us know exactly what those families look like. I suspect that some of us have lived that story, that there is no greater crime than telling the truth. Well, I'm thinking about secrets this morning. I'm thinking about the, the secrets families keep. I'm thinking about the secrets churches keep. I'm thinking about the secret systems keep or communities keep or nations keep. I'm, I'm thinking about the ways that we sometimes refuse to acknowledge the truth. I'm thinking about the ways that we sometimes uh, ignore the truth because if it is revealed, it will cause dissonance or require us to work when we know something is not right, when we know something needs to be handled, needs to be dealt with. It takes work, and, and some of us, we just don't want that job. So we'd rather bury the truth and not deal with its consequences. I'm thinking about these things sort of indirectly from Second Samuel, and I need you to 
follow me a little bit here with my train of thought and why it is that I'm thinking about secrets and why I'm thinking about the concealment of the truth. In order to do that, we need to take a half a step back from this particular story and just kind of review some of what takes place between uh, 1 Samuel and the transition into 2 Samuel. If you were here a few weeks ago, you know I preached on the anointing of David, the call of David, this unlikely uh, choice of God to be the heir to Saul. A couple problems here with that is that Samuel anoints David outside of Saul's knowledge that he is doing such a thing, that God was doing such a thing, that God had, had, that Saul rather had fallen out of favor with God, that God was raising up a new king. Not only was this going to be a new king, but it was going to be a king outside of his lineage, outside of his progeny, something not common in the ancient world. It was from a different family line, the family of Jesse. What you also need to know is that while David was anointed to be the heir apparent, to be the next monarch, there was a great deal of time between that anointing and when Saul eventually uh, met his demise. And, and what you need to know about that is that David was gaining popularity. Remember, he bested the, the Philistine giant. Remember that, that he was hailed as a, as a hero. He even had 400 soldiers that came around him that were his own sort of personal army. And what the text tells us about Saul is that he was very dissatisfied with the praise that David was getting. He actually became very paranoid about David. He was unhappy that David was the heir apparent and, and confidence in Saul's leadership was diminishing and, and it was failing. And, and Saul became so enraged at David that he actually wanted to kill him. He wanted to kill him. He wanted to take him out. And interestingly, this is kind of like the soap opera aspect of this text. Uh, interestingly, one of Saul's children, Jonathan, was David's best friend. How complicated is that? David and Jonathan were best friends. This one uh, king, Saul, who, who wants to kill David, his son is best friends with David himself. In fact, things go so sideways in this story that when Jonathan, David's best friend, defends him to the king... Saul becomes so enraged that he wants to kill his own son. That's how messed up this story goes. And Saul's ready to take out his own kid because of his defense of David. So that's what you need to know before this eulogy, before this song of lament, before this story is told, and before the people are invited to tell this story about Saul and about Jonathan. And what we learn is that both Jonathan and Saul are now dead. David instructs the people to take up this lament. This should be their story. This should be the story that they tell. This is the truth that they ought to tell. The phrase, how the mighty have fallen, repeats throughout the lament, uh, using the word mighty to uh, attribute, using mighty to attribute the strength and and, and the leadership towards Saul and Jonathan, David makes uh, no bones about it. He repeats himself a few times. And David speaks with great affection for both men, for both of them. Now, if you're reading this, now, hearing this, the backstory that I just offered, you may be like me and, and somewhat confused, right? We, it makes sense 
if David is lamenting Jonathan's death, that makes sense. They were best friends. They were kindred spirits, uh, uh, spirits rather. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. Like it makes sense for Jonathan, but all these accolades and all this praise towards Saul, I, I almost want to put myself back in that uh, context, in that situation. I want to listen to, to David's song here and then take him to the side and say, wait, what are you talking about, man? That Saul was this great hero, that Saul was this great warrior. Are we talking about the same guy, the, the Saul that had fallen out of favor with God, the Saul who wanted to kill you, the Saul who was jealous of you, the, the Saul who was paranoid, the Saul who wanted to kill his own son because he is your best friend. Not only that, David also asked the people to keep Saul's demise secret. Did you notice that? Don't tell anybody. Don't tell our enemies. Don't tell anybody outside of what's happened. Conceal the truth about this, lest our enemies take advantage of us. And what is true to so many of our experiences is that, is that how Saul died, how Saul actually died is, is kept secret within this lament too. See, for those who were A students in Sunday school, you know that Saul fell on his own sword. You know that Saul died by suicide after finding out that three of his children had been killed in battle. But David doesn't mention that at all. He doesn't name it at, at all. There's continuity, I think, perhaps with some of our own experiences, maybe not universally, but at least for some of us. Have you ever been to a funeral service where the deceased has died by suicide and it isn't mentioned at all? Have you ever been to a service like that? I mean, that's kind of what's happening here. Now, I, I want to be clear about something. We have to have compassion. We have to have compassion for people who are walking that impossible road and the choices that they make in real time. We have to have compassion and we have to be judgment-free around what they share and what they, what they don't share. But it still doesn't, even with that said, it still doesn't change the dissonance or the challenge that we experience when we're sitting in pews like these or in conversation with close family and friends and no one shares the truth. No one shares the struggle. And what it actually does for us when we bury these secrets, when we bury these truths, it actually prohibits us from processing the grief in healthy ways from processing what we've experienced in the death of this loved one. It's disorienting for us. And it's very difficult to move through that space when the truth isn't allowed to be spoken. Now, now you might be thinking, you know, Tony, give David a break here, right? I mean, he's wearing a lot of hats. Maybe David doesn't want to kick dirt on another man's grave. Maybe he's from the South, only say good things in public about people, right? Maybe he's just doing that. You know, cut him a break. Give him, give him some slack. Perhaps he's taking the political high road. Perhaps he's like functioning as a statesman. This would make sense to us, right? He's neglecting to mention the harder truths about Saul. He's not going to mention all of those things because maybe he thinks that's what the people need to hear. Sort of like uh, Nolan's Batman series. Some of you have seen that. When we know Harvey Dent goes bad, Batman says, let's not tell the truth about Harvey Dent because that's not what the people need. They need 
a hero. They don't need to hear his bad side, right? That's possibly what's happening here with David. Perhaps, perhaps it's much more personal for him. Perhaps he's trying to convince himself saying, look, it wasn't that bad. It really wasn't that bad. I know he tried to kill me. Maybe he was kidding. Ha ha. Maybe it wasn't that bad. Now, some of us, all jokes aside, some of us know exactly what that's like. Processing the harder truths of our life, the secrets that we keep. We try to convince ourselves it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. And we do ourselves a disservice by not sharing the truth and giving it what it deserves. In his book, Telling Secrets, Frederick Buechner offers a compelling reason why we shouldn't keep secrets or ignore or bury the hard truths of our lives that shape so much of who we are. And I, and I couldn't say it in any better way than he says it. It's a, an extended passage, but I hope you will give it your attention. Buechner says, I've come to believe that by and large, the human family all has the same secrets, which are both very telling and very important to tell. They are telling in the sense that they tell what is perhaps the central paradox of our condition, that we hunger for perhaps more than anything else to be known in our full humanness. And yet that is often just what we also fear more than anything else. It's important to tell at least from time to time the secret of who we truly and fully are, even if we tell it only to ourselves. Because otherwise, we run the risk of losing track of who we truly and fully are. And little by little, come to accept instead the highly edited version which we put forth in hope that the world will find it more acceptable than the real thing. He goes on to say, it's important to tell our secrets too because it makes it easier that way to see where we have been in our lives and where we're going. It also makes it easier for other people to tell us a secret or two of their own. And exchanges like that, he says, have a lot to do with what being a family is all about and what being human is all about. One of the things I love about the text that Miriam read for us is how brutally honest and detailed in its honesty that text is. Talking about the death of a child, talking about a woman hemorrhaging for 12 years, it doesn't pull any punches. And one of the subtle uh, nuggets of cold in that text is when Jesus is touched by the woman and he asks, who touched me? And they're looking around for that person. He felt the power go out of him. And they finally find the woman. And what does the text say? She told the truth. Did you catch that? She told the truth about herself. This is me. You know, I thought a lot this week about what David might have done differently. And it may be a good exercise for us to consider such things as we think about how we will tell our secrets, how we will tell our truths. David, I think, could have honored Saul's legacy as this fallen king, and at the same time, he, he could have been honest about Saul's sins. David could have honored Saul as a brave warrior and at the same time been honest about the fact that Saul couldn't live in a world without his children, honest about the circumstances of his, of his death. In other words, David could have told the whole truth, not just part of the truth, but the, but the whole truth. And these whole truths are not 
unfamiliar to us at all, at all. Right? What we're talking about here is human beings, like Saul, full of strengths and full of weaknesses. We are at the same time both sinners and saints. And, and what I'm suggesting, you to this, suggesting to you this morning is, is something just quite simple and straightforward. That we tell the whole truth about ourselves. Even if it means telling the harder secrets. The stories that, that shape and map and, and make our lives. And so let me close with this, and I want to be very clear about this next point. The secrets we keep are not always easy to tell. I mean, let's just say it as it is. There's secrets that you keep that feel impossible to tell. And sometimes we need time to tell those secrets, even to ourselves, let alone to anybody else, let alone to God. Sometimes we need time. It's not like I expect that after the sermon you're going to go and deal with all your deep, dark secrets, to deal with the harder truths of your lives. For some of us, it's going to take time. But even so, we need to acknowledge that, that keeping secrets weighs on us so heavily. Keeping secrets is, is hard and laborious work. And keeping secrets can rob us of the chance to receive somebody else's empathy. Right? I mean, keeping secrets can rob us for the chance of justice and, and to do what's right. It can rob us of the opportunity to provide safety and protection for someone who's being harmed. It can rob us of the chance to not make the same mistakes that somebody else made. It can rob us of the chance for healing and, and wholeness. Keeping secrets can rob us of the opportunity for redemption. And keeping secrets, I think, theologically speaking, does not allow us to see that God can handle our secrets. That God can handle the hard truths of our lives. And I believe that God will give us the grace and the boldness and the courage to allow us personally to handle our own secrets. To deal with them. To confront the harder stories that shape our lives. When we keep secrets, we keep at arm's length, the grace that is awaiting for us when we speak the truth about ourselves, the way the hemorrhaging woman did. This is me. This is my story. And that's why I need you. So friends, don't be afraid to tell your secrets. It may take some time, but don't be afraid to tell them. To tell them to God, to tell them to yourself, and to tell them to people that you really trust a community of trust. Hopefully we are a community of trust where we can share those truths which in turn lessens the load that we have to bear in this world, that others can help us carry these truths. So don't be afraid of the truth. Remember what Christ said, the truth will set you free. And indeed, it does. Amen. Thank you.